0: coming and take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 as we look at our third week in this beautiful story of the woman at the well. One of the most well-known conversion stories in church history is the conversion story of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon is unquestionably the most influential pastor theologian of the last 200 years, Not only someone who had a great impact in his day, but someone who continues to have a great impact. He was raised in a wonderful home. He had godly parents who loved the Lord and took very seriously. Spurgeon was really uh, rooted in a Puritan understanding of family worship, which means his family was gathering Every day to talk about the things of the Lord. Uh, Something, by the way, we're going to be instructing you in as parents in January. We have a great new resource for you for that. But Spurgeon was really raised in a home in which they talked about the Lord all the time. He knew the gospel from an early age. He had been taught the truth of scripture through catechism. Yet, as he got into his teenage years, he knew he was lost. And interestingly, he didn't want to be lost. He just could not understand how to get peace with God and he would read his Bible and he would pray and he would seek the Lord, but he just could not ever come to a place where he thought he had peace with God. It was a January morning in 1850 in which he felt compelled to go to church and on his way to church, there was a terrible blizzard. He was hindered from going to the church he normally goes to. He was diverted and ended up into this small, obscure, primitive Methodist church. And I want you to hear his testimony from that night. Listen to what he says. He says, I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister did not come this morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. The preacher goes on. But then the text says, look unto me. Ah, he said, many on you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there you'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. But Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Spurgeon continues. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare so with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. The preacher continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Spurgeon says, then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only one primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do, but look and live. Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. I knew not what else he said. I I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to be. Look until I could almost have looked my eyes out. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. and that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Just trust Christ and you will be saved. I think one of the reasons it's such a well-known and beautiful story is because of a great man we think Spurgeon to be and yet the simple way in which he came to Christ. He says himself, there was a stupid preacher, a simple sermon, ...a small church and a blizzard. And yet in that context... ...he was saved. And you wonder how in the world... ...a man like Spurgeon with a bad sermon... ...and just a a simple messenger coming up to preach... ...how is it that Spurgeon... ...in the midst of hearing day after day... ...the gospel of Jesus Christ at home... ...and being exposed to great preaching before... ...why was it that at that day... ...he came to Christ? And the answer is this... ...the time was right... ...Spurgeon was ready... ...the spirit was moving... And there was a faithful witness with a simple word of the gospel. Because of that moment, in that little small church on a snowy January morning, countless thousands and thousands have been saved and blessed. The last two weeks, we have looked at this beautiful story of Jesus and the woman at the well. We saw two weeks ago how the mission is moving. Jesus is leaving Judea to go to, to Galilee. It is a little Point of Acts 1 8 that the mission is moving out as Jesus is rejected by his own people. It says that Jesus is weary from the journey. He's tired. He's exhausted. Not just from the walk uh, that he had taken that day, but just from the whole thing, all the tension, the pressure. He's physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way, he's tired. And so he just sits down on the desert floor and leans his back up against a well. It says in the text that he had to go through Samaria, which is not geographically true, but it is true because as John 3, 8 says, the spirit of God is like a wind that moves and we don't know where it's going. But what we know in John 4 is the spirit is blowing towards Samaria. And Jesus has a woman there that he needs to meet. And so he engages her in a conversation that begins very vague and impersonal, a conversation that she does not understand. And I want to read us some of that starting in verse 7. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And I've said this every week. Verse 10, I believe the most important verse. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is a vague and impersonal in a sense conversation that she does not fully understand. But what Jesus is trying to get her to understand is this: is that life without Jesus is never increasing thirst and ever decreasing satisfaction. Life without Jesus is ever increasing thirst, but ever decreasing satisfaction. But life with Jesus is ever decreasing thirst and ever increasing satisfaction. Life with Jesus is an ever-decreasing thirst because you're satisfied in him and ever-increasing satisfaction. But she doesn't understand, and so Jesus, like a good doctor, knowing that she will only understand the medicine she needs if she knows the problem inside of her, moves from vague and impersonal to very specific and very personal in her life. This is our text for last week, but I want to read it, starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, "'Go and call your husband and come here.'" The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I speak to you, am he. That was our text for last week. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back as Jesus says that what the Father is looking for is those who have had a work of the Spirit of God done in their spirit, supernatural work, by which their spirit now loves God and longs for God and hungers and thirsts for God and worships God. Why? Because the Spirit of God has worked in their spirit and given them a desire to worship in spirit and truth. That's what God's looking for. And according to John 3, it is only the Spirit of God that can do that in our hearts. But that's what God wants. What does God want from us? He wants a heart that has been moved by the spirit of God and therefore worships God. And Now the story continues. After this incredible moment in verse 26 where for the very first time Jesus acknowledges exactly who he is. We see a story much like Spurgeon's. We see a story of a very surprising witness and a very surprising work of God. And it's a great encouragement for us as we try to lead others to Jesus. The truth is this woman becomes an example to us. Right here, just quickly converted to Jesus. She becomes an example of God wanting to stir us up and give us great hope and encouragement and confidence as we seek to lead other people to Jesus Christ. So look at how the story continues starting in verse 27. Just then as disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper, I love this, may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Is really a story of a surprising witness and a very surprising work of God that is intended to be a great encouragement to us, to motivate us as we leave this place today to be more faithful and confident in the work that God is doing as we seek to lead others to Christ. So The story continues that the disciples came back. They had gone to get something to eat. We know that from what we read a moment ago. When they come back, it says that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. That is a word that probably should be translated a little bit stronger. Uh, The word marvel doesn't quite communicate it. It means to be astonished or amazed or extraordinarily shocked. They were extraordinarily shocked at what they saw because of, of who he was talking to. He was talking to a woman. That's exactly what they say. They were marveled that he was talking with a woman. No respectable rabbi would have found himself in this situation in this time. No respectable rabbi would have had a conversation with a woman alone like this. But this is not just a woman, it's a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans and Jews hated each other. We already saw Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. A Jew would not uh, touch something a Samaritan had touched. If they touched something a Samaritan had touched, they would wash their hands because they got Samaritan on them. They would not drink out of a cup that a Samaritan drank after. Jesus breaking down that when he asked for her cup to get something to drink... And so he couldn't believe he was talking to a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman. And then she's a Samaritan woman of ill repute. She's a Samaritan woman that is coming at noon because of her reputation. She's not only uh, kind of an outcast from the Jewish people, she's an outcast from her own people. She goes alone at noon when no other woman was going to draw water because of her reputation. And it's hard to imagine for us how shocking it would be for the disciples to come back and see what they saw. The only illustration I could think of, and I hesitated not to use this, but imagine you're driving to downtown Athens and you're going to get something to eat and you look on the side of the road as you're stopped at a stoplight and there I am speaking with a woman of ill repute. Can I just say it that way? And you notice that. You say, wait a minute, is that Pastor Josh? I think that's Pastor Josh. Is that what I think? Well, that doesn't look right. You would be shocked. A thousand times more than that were the disciples Shocked. What you would have seen there would have been nothing compared to the absolute amazement the disciples had when they could not comprehend for a moment why in the world Jesus would speak to a woman and a Samaritan woman and a woman of ill repute. And little did they know the entire reason Jesus came to that well on that day at that moment is exactly to meet her. It's exactly why he was there. But I love what it says next, but no one said anything. (laughs) No one was going to say anything. What they were thinking is, what are you doing? Because it says that. Why are you talking to her? But they were afraid to ask that question. They did not ask what he was doing. But verse 28 says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Remember, over the last couple of weeks, we've said that one of the most powerful cross references to this passage is Jeremiah 2.13. Where it says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. The picture is a picture of everyone who doesn't have Christ. They're holding around these heavy buckets and they're filling them with everything they think is going to give them life with the approval of others, with affirmation, with clothes, with success, with wealth, with whatever it is. They're just filling the bucket with anything else and they can't understand why they're not satisfied. And it's because the buckets leak. Because what they need is not a leaky bucket. They need a fountain inside of them, which is what Jesus came to give. Now, can I just tell you, giving you that little word picture, there is something significant that it says here. Every word of God is significant. So the woman left her water jar and went into town. The picture is, is that she dropped all of the things that she had always been trying to carry, all the things that she had been trying to find satisfaction, in, and she dropped them there. She ran into town and she said, you've got to come and see a man that told me everything that I've ever done. And the picture then in verse 39, 30 is this. They went out of the town and people were coming to him. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and I want to just acknowledge a little bit more why exactly the disciples marveled so much at what was happening here. Why were they so shocked? There are three things we know for sure. I could say more than this, but three at least uh, things that we must know about the common view of Jewish women in Jesus' day. The first one is this. Women were not really valued in Jesus' day. They were seen as disposable. As a matter of fact, this is the reason we have all of this talk between the Pharisees and Jesus about divorce. Because a man could divorce his wife in Jewish days with no cause whatsoever. He could just dispose of her and get another and another. It was only until about the third marriage in which they started to ask questions. A woman was really viewed as someone who existed to bear children for men and meet men's physical needs. That was it. And so there was really no value of women in these days. They were also not taught. You know that women were not allowed to be taught the Torah. There are quotes that say that it would rather be better to to burn the Torah than to have women studying the Torah. And so they were not involved in theological conversations. This kind of thoughtfulness, these things about the Lord were reserved for the men to talk about. The women were not allowed to be taught. They were not valued. They were not taught. And they were not believed. Their testimony did not matter. And so in a court of law or in any moment in which there was a need for a testimony, the woman's testimony would not have been asked for because it didn't matter because it wasn't believed. They were not valued, not taught, nor were they believed. And do you realize that in one conversation, Jesus radically and dramatically shatters every bit of that? In one conversation, Jesus takes the common view of women in his day and completely shatters every bit of it. First of all, he values her by treating her with seriousness and having a conversation with her, even acknowledging, as we saw last week, her truthfulness. He says, What you have said is true. And again, he says, What you have said is true. And so by speaking to her in that way, there is never a moment in which he's demeaning to her. He looks at her. He stops. He engages her in a conversation. He looks her in the eye and he values her. And then he teaches her. He has a theological conversation with a woman. That was not allowed in the day. But he talks to her about very serious things and continues to have this theological conversation with her. It is the first person to which he reveals his true identity. He doesn't do that to anybody else. He hasn't done it to the disciples yet. He hasn't done it to Nicodemus yet. He does it first to her. The most serious thing he could say, he says to her. And then finally, it is her testimony That starts the movement of God. Do you realize the significance of that? It is her testimony. Twice it says. It talks about her testimony in verse 30. And I believe in verse 39. When it's her testimony that begins this massive work of God. And this this kind of idea here of Jesus shattering the misconception about the role of women. Is something John continues to push. In John 11, it is Martha who receives some of the deepest teaching in all of the gospel of John about the resurrection and the life. It is John 20 in which Mary Magdalene is the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection and is the one who goes and bears witness to the other disciples that Jesus is risen. That's significant. And every gospel writer does this. Luke, probably more than anyone else, but the gospel of John is starting a theme of the way in which Jesus is massively changing the view of women and their usefulness in the kingdom. What John wants us to understand is that women do not exist to simply help men do the work of the kingdom. Women are co-heirs of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are a critical part of the advancing of the kingdom of God. They do not just exist to support the men while we do kingdom work. The kingdom work cannot be done without the role of faithful, godly, thoughtful, theologically informed, Jesus-loving women in the church. And Jesus really wants us to understand that and to know that. Now, I know that we don't treat women in our day like first century Jews, but I do sense that we need to value them more. And their role in the kingdom and affirm them more and help them to understand the way in which God wants to use them in the church. Now listen, we believe, and it's important to say this because of the day in which we live, without any question whatsoever, we believe that there is one role reserved for men, the role of the pastor elder, for equipped, called men, 1 Timothy 2.12 makes that extremely clear. There's many other places we could go, Titus chapter 1, that it makes that clear that God has chosen that men alone fill the position of a pastor elder. And the reason that's so important is because it is through the ministry of the church in which we begin to understand marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, and it is through marriage that we come to understand the gospel, also Ephesians 5. And what I have discovered is this, if a church flakes on that issue if a church says that the role of pastor elders for men and women what it does is it messes up the home which messes up the picture of the gospel not only does it mess up the church it is impossible for a church to get soft on that issue and years later to hold faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ it's impossible it can't be done but I'm going to say something to you and I don't want to debate it after the service I don't want you to come to me and talk to me about this after the service I got two more of these to do, but I'm going to say this. I've been searching the scripture significantly for the last year. And I can't find any other role in the church that a woman can't fill except that of a pastor elder. That's significant. That's significant. Because what it means is it's time for us, like Jesus, to value the women of our church and help them to know deep in their soul that it would be impossible for us to fill the work God has given us without them. We don't need them on the sidelines saying, Good job, guys. We need them right in the middle of the work that God is doing. Ladies, we need you desperately as we're seeking to advance the kingdom of God together. And Jesus is so good and kind to begin to show us these things. And what's amazing is this it's the testimony of the woman that Jesus uses to rebuke his disciples. Look at this, how the story goes. So the disciples come back in verse 31 and they're begging him to eat. They're worried about him. He's tired, he's weary, we know that. Rabbi, eat, but he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about, to which they say, did anybody bring him something to eat? This is the fourth time in the Gospel of John this has happened. First of all, it was in chapter two when Jesus says, tear this temple down and I'll raise it in three days. And they go, it took 46 years to build the temple. The second is in John 3 in which Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. I I don't go back into my mother's womb, weird and gross. I'm not doing that. Chapter 4, if you knew who I was, you would ask for living water and you'd never thirst again. You don't even have a bucket. So for the fourth time, Jesus says something to which those listening to him do not understand. He's speaking spiritually. He says to them, I have food you do not know about. My food is to do the work of the one who sent me. The will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Verse 34. And the point is, it's not just the religious leaders who don't get it. It's not just Nicodemus who doesn't get it. It's not just the Samaritan woman who doesn't get it. The disciples also don't get this kind of talk from Jesus. But he is still tired and hungry. And I think a lot about Elijah this week as I was studying this. There's this wonderful passage in 1 Kings 19 in which Elijah is, is weary, like Jesus is in this text. He has just had this massive battle at Mount Carmel, calling down fire from heaven, slaughtering 450 prophets of Baal. That's a long day, slaughtering 450 false prophets. I don't know, but I would imagine. And so he's done that. Then he's been hiding for three years. King Ahab wants to kill him. Jezebel, the most wicked woman in all of the Old Testament, is after him. And he runs away and hides under a tree and wants to die and thinks his life's no good. He's just tired. And you know what the Lord does for him? Listen, you know what the Lord does? He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't say, Elijah, I told you to pace yourself. He doesn't say, Elijah, you should have slowed down. Elijah, you didn't read that leadership book I gave you. What he did is this. He gave him a hot meal and a nap. And then he put him back to sleep and gave him a second nap and a second hot meal. You know why? Because sometimes we just get tired and we're human beings. And sometimes the solution to our problems is not a thousand complicated things, it's that you're tired and you need some time with Jesus and a nap and a good meal. So go apply that this afternoon. Not right now, but later this afternoon. Sometimes we're just human beings. You say, Why am I so tired? Because you're tired. And Jesus here is not saying he didn't get hungry and tired. He was a human being and in his flesh, he was tired and we know that he slept and we know that he ate. What it's saying here is this. It's not that he didn't need sleep or didn't need food, but in this moment, he found himself incredibly energized and sustained by the work of ministry. He was so excited and so encouraged and so full and so joyful. He forgot about how tired and hungry he was. And all of that led to the perfect lesson that the disciples needed in verses 35 through 38. He says, guys, I want you to understand what's happening in my heart. How full I am and how satisfied I am right now and how joyful I am. He says, guys, you say there are four months and then comes the harvest. And he's doing that thing again where he says something practical that they don't quite understand as spiritual. You you look at it and you say, well, it's four months until the harvest But I want to say to you, look at this. Look at this in 35. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, look here at me. Here's what's happening. Remember verse 30? There were Samaritans coming out of this town to Jesus. They were walking towards Jesus. So here were Jesus and his disciples at the well. They were looking. And all these people were coming out to the well. And what Jesus says to his disciples is this. Guys, you're saying, well, the harvest is four months away. I'm saying, open your eyes and look. People are coming to me right now. Look at them. They're coming to me right now. And he says, guys, what I'm afraid is happening to you is you're thinking, well, someday when I know a little bit more. Someday when I'm a little bit more equipped. Someday when I sense this. And someday and someday to which Jesus says, would you stop talking about someday and open your eyes to what God's doing today? Right now, people are coming to me and you're thinking, well, you know, someday I think maybe I'll be better equipped. And here's a Samaritan woman who literally knows almost nothing about Jesus, who is leading scores and scores of people to Jesus. He says... In verse 36, already, right now, the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper might rejoice together. You know what I think Jesus is saying? He was saying there is a sower and there's a reaper right now. And what's happening is there is me and this woman who I talk to about the Lord. And we're sowing and all of a sudden we're about to be reaping. And, you know, this woman and I are rejoicing together. Why? Because we're about to see a bunch of people come to Christ. You know who's happy? The Samaritan woman. You know who else is happy? Jesus. You know who else is about to be happy? This whole town. There's like great rejoicing in the city. Why? Because while the disciples were out getting something to eat, Jesus was doing the work of the ministry and the sowing and the reaping is taking place. For verse 37 says, for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you entered into their labor. Now, what I love about first 38 is this, is, is Jesus is saying, guys, here you are, I love this. And all these people are about to come to us and they're about to get saved and you're gonna think, well, man, I tell you, we've had a good day, How we really did good. And You know the truth, the only reason this happened is because this lady went out while y'all weren't doing anything and shared the gospel with people. She didn't even share the gospel. She just said, hey, you gotta come and see this guy. And so certainly it's true the point that I think he's making here is the point of 1 Corinthians 3 where it says Paul watered and, uh, and Apollos, uh, or Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. Certainly there are people all the time that are doing these little works of ministry. And oftentimes when we lead someone to Christ, the reason we led him to Christ is because 10 other people has already worked on him. We just got there at the right moment. But even more than that, we have to read John 4 in light of John 3. And we have to realize that one of the things that Jesus is saying here is that the spirit of God is, is moving and the wind of the spirit, verse three, uh, chapter three, verse eight, is, is working and the reality is all of us are getting in on the, the labor of someone else who has planted seeds, but even more so, we're getting in on the spirit of God and the work that he is doing. And we walk by people every day and we have no idea, but it could be that many of those we walk by, the spirit of God is working and moving in their heart. God is the one who gives the increase. And Jesus wanted his disciples to see that the spirit is always working and people are always ready to be saved. And he wanted them to see the massive impact of a a short conversation like this. And the reason I started with that Spurgeon story is because it's a story of the right time with a people who are ready, with the spirit moving, with a faithful witness and a simple word and a bad sermon and someone got saved the reality is, is this is the way the kingdom works. Oftentimes, people get saved. Why? Just because the time is right, the spirit is moving, they happen to be ready, and you can give them a really poor gospel presentation, and they still get saved. Not because your presentation was great, but because God was working. And that's the point he's making to his disciples. Guys, you keep saying, well, maybe someday, maybe someday stop, look around. The fields are white for harvest. People are ready to be saved. I think the encouraging thing here is that God wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit is preparing people to be saved. But what they just need is a witness. Can, can you hear me this morning? God is working and preparing people to be saved. That is not your work. The work that God needs is just someone who'd say something. It could be as simple as, hey, you got to come and meet this guy. Because do you realize how the text ends? Jesus did the rest of the work. He did the hard work. All this lady did is said, why don't you come and, and, and hear what is, what is happening? And I think what God wants us to see this morning is listen, is the time is now and and people are ready and the person is you and the joy that God wants to give you is real. The time is now, it's not later because there's people that are ready. Why? Because the spirit is moving and I don't know who they are. God knows who they are, and so what do we do? We just go say something about the Lord. We, we give a little word. We start a little conversation. We invite someone to church or to a Christmas thing. We say, let me tell you what Jesus did, and all of a sudden, something's gonna happen that you won't believe. They're gonna get saved, not because you did a good job, because the time was right, and they were ready, and the Spirit was moving, and God used your faithful witness to do something incredible. That's what he wants the disciples to understand. This morning, as a part of our service in just a few minutes, actually, we're going to invite up uh, some people who have committed to plant a church, a gospel preaching church in five points. We believe, along with First Walkinsville, that we need to work together to start a church in five points that opens the Bible and teaches it unashamedly. We need a gospel witness there. And so there are 30 people, some from Watkinsville, some from Prince. We have put in money. They have put in money who are going to go and leave and start this church in January. And I couldn't help but thinking about them in this text because the reality is Think about how encouraging this should be for those who are going to start a new work. But think about how encouraging it should be for you as you walk into the holidays and you're thinking about lost people, because here's the reality. What they want to see in five points, and what we want to see in Bogart and what we want to see in Nepal and Peru and every else we go, is verses 39 through 42. This is what we want to see. We want to see many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came, they asked him to stay and many more believed because of his word. This Five Points Church, all they wanna see is that. They wanna see many believe because of the word that they heard and all we wanna see in our family and in our community is that. We want many to believe and many to believe. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, in this case, it started with one God-ordained simple conversation. Here's an entire town giving their life to Jesus Christ. Why? Because one man had a simple conversation with a woman who did not fully understand, but she understood enough to say, you got to come meet this man. And Jesus did the rest. Why? Because you never know when the time is right and when the spirit is moving and how, if you will just say something at the right time, someone is going to give their life to Jesus Christ. And somehow the Lord has to free us up from, from the weight of thinking we have to, to close the deal or the sense that no one wants to hear us or no one wants to believe us because the spirit of God is moving in people all around us. John three eighteen. the spirit is moving. The spirit is moving. You just have to open your mouth and say something. You say, well, I don't know if I got what it takes. Well, the Samaritan woman did not have what it takes. She had had about a 10 minute conversation with Jesus and she started a great movement of God. You know, our Advent theme this morning is the theme of joy. And I love that because it says that the sower and the reaper in verse 35, they rejoice together. And I think the significance is, is as we read from our Advent reading in John 15, verse 11 this week, that Jesus says, these things I've written that you might have my joy, that my joy might be in you. What is the joy of Jesus? The joy of Jesus is walking in the fullness of the spirit of God, being faithful to what God calls him to do and just seeing God work time and time again. And can I say to you, there is no greater joy in all of life than just being a part of something that includes you because you were faithful, but more than that demonstrates that well before you ever had a thought about this, the spirit of God was working and moving and you just got in on it on the right time. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to have two times of prayer. I want us to have our normal time of prayer that we always do, get on our knees and pray. I want us to have a personal time like that and then I want us to have a corporate time. In the personal time, here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray this morning about your own salvation. I want you to ask the serious question if there is evidence of the spirit of God's work in your life. Do you have a hunger and thirst for God? Do you desire God? Is there anything that is any evidence that God's spirit has worked in your spirit and given you a desire to worship him? If not, you need to trust Jesus Christ. I want you to pray in that personal time for a desire. Lord, I want to be used by you. Would you give me a greater desire to be used by you? Give me a greater desire for the lost. And I want you to pray a prayer of surrender. Lord, I'm surrendering all I have and everything I am to you. Would you just use me, use me, use me. And then I want you to pray for the joy. The joy that comes when you see people come to Christ. And I'm going to ask our five points team to come on up right now. I'm going to ask them to come right up. And I'm going to ask them to spread along here in the front. Come on up. And I'm going to ask them to do the same thing. I'm gonna ask them to get on their knees this morning and do this time of personal prayer. I'm gonna ask the five points team as really a a, a moment of surrender to them, of Lord, I'm surrendering myself and my life to you. I wanna be used by you. I pray that they would pray, Lord. I wanna know the joy of leading people to Christ. Just spread out, take some room and spread out here this morning. I want you to pray individually that the Lord would stir up in your heart a desire for the lost, to surrender to his will, that he would give you that joy as all of us pray as well. And then what we're going to do is this, after our time on our knees in prayer, we're going to continue praying, but then after we pray for ourselves, I'm going to ask many of you who know these people uh, or just want to come and pray over them to come, I'll ask you to do that in a minute, and just to pray over them, to lay hands on them as they're on their knees and pray. You might recognize some of these people, Craven and Jan Hudson and John and Samantha Varghese are from our church and are leaving uh, to go be a part of the Five Points team, and we pray that many more would do the same. But this morning, here's what we want to do. We're all just going to get on our knees and we're going to pray for these things. God, use me in this way. We're going to pray personally and then I'll lead us into some corporate prayer as well. So let's all of us get on our knees this morning if we're able. Let's just pray that God would stir this up in our heart.